Uh, it's good to see you. Would you join me in Acts chapter number 10? So we're going to start at the end of chapter 10. So I hope you have a Bible. Um, you'll see the verses. We have a long, long passage today, quite a few verses. And the reason is there's some repetition, uh, so I'll not be deep diving into all of the things. Uh, and I'm just going to go with uh, kind of what's been planned. I realize that a good percentage of our folks here this morning, uh, you have not been with us through. So we're going through the book of Acts. Uh, and you've not been with us into chapter 10, and chapter 10 into 11, the first 18 verses of chapter 11, where we're going to, it's all a unit, and so you have a major advantage if you've been with us each of the weeks, or most of them, if you've not been, that's fine, you just, like literally, I'm asking everybody to do this right now, and you just pray and say, Lord, show me what you have for me this morning, you may not get everything uh, that, uh, that someone else would get. Um, so here's where we're at, we're going through the book of Acts, the church uh, began really in essence in chapter 2, and it was all Jewish, and then by chapter 8, half Jews were brought into the church, they were called Samaritans, and that left this other group, uh, Gentiles, that's me and most of us, uh, non-Jews in any way, and so this, these two chapters are kind of our spiritual birthday, this is our coming into uh, the family, into the church, into salvation. And the idea here is we're coming in without having to become Jewish. So let me mention this. This had already happened. This has already happened. Where people are born a Gentile but become Jewish. Baptized, go to the synagogue, study the Old Testament, worship the God of the Bible, forsake their pagan religions. You know, if they're males, they would get circumcised. And then in that state of being a Jewish proselyte, they hear the gospel and become a Christian. That's already happened. But what's not happened is what's taking place here. And what I didn't have to do for me to become a Christian, I did not have to become a Jew first and then become a Christian. I just went straight from being Gentile right to being a Christian. And that's, there's a reason we're able to do that. And that's because of this section of Scripture. Uh, and we'll read it in a moment. So here's how it went down. And again, I would challenge you to go back and, hey, let me throw this out. I don't say this all the time. I say it a few times. If you, anybody in here, or someone you know is struggling with, am I a Christian? Am I saved? I'm not sure I'm going to heaven or not. We have a website called graceviewchurch.com, and on there you would be able to go in. I, I just navigate around, find media or whatever it is, and click under there, and you would find sermons, you know, recent sermons out of Acts. I want to challenge you to go to last week's message, okay? So last week's date, if you're like, I don't know that I'm saved. We boiled that down, I believe, into the absolute essence of what has to happen for you to become a Christian. We'll touch on it just briefly here, but everything last week. So if you're like, man, I know somebody, uh, they're not a Christian, and, and I'd love to be able to tell them how. If they can sit through it, I'm not, it's a long message, like it is every week. It, they're all long, uh, but if they sit through it, and God may use that. I'm praying. I prayed big things over last week's message. I really did, and I continue to do that. And when we get to heaven, we'll see what the Lord does. So I'm encouraging you, get out there and pass it along. Not because of who's speaking, but because of what is taught in verses 43 and 44. So key. And we finished at a very odd place. So here's where we're at. There's this man named Cornelius, and he's a Gentile. He's a Roman centurion, a Roman soldier. He's the one who's going to get saved, him and his house. God appears to him. He's already been dabbling with Jewishness, with Judaism. But he's only a God-fearer. He hasn't become a Jew by baptism and circumcision. 
God sends an angel to him and tells him that his prayer, we know the nature of his prayer was, Lord, show me how to be right with you. We know that because God says the answer to your prayer is to send for a man named Peter. He's 30 miles away in a city called Joppa. And when he comes, he's going to tell you a very important message. He's the one who's going to tell you how to do this. Well, then he sends his three men. Go get this guy named Peter down in the city of Joppa. So this is Caesarea down on the Mediterranean coast. Off they, they go on this errand. Meanwhile, Peter, the apostle, is, you're going to kind of, I can't go into it all, but he gets this vision. And God ends up showing him that he's tearing down the wall between Jews and Gentiles. And so this is going to give Peter the confidence to do what's not been done up to this point. He's going to go into a Gentile's house, and Jews did not go into Gentile houses. They thought, man, that, is, that will defile me. Man, that will make me unclean. Peter is going to go into this man's house, and he's just going to preach the gospel. So here's the message. This is what we looked at last week. This is verses 34 to 43. Here's what he does. He says, Cornelius, he gets there. Cornelius tells about his side of the vision. Peter knows what's been going on. God's been working in his heart and revealing things to him. You'll see that in a moment, what happened. And then Peter preaches this version of the gospel. He says, you guys know, and this is true, because they lived in the land of Israel, you know what's been going on. You've heard about Jesus and how the peace of God comes through Jesus. And you've heard how that when he was baptized by John the Baptist, the Holy Spirit. So at age 30, here Jesus is God and man. He's the God-man for 30 years. But something mysterious at his baptism, the Holy Spirit came upon him. And then he launched his ministry of healing people. I mean, all nothing ever was too hard. Everything that was brought to him, literally all the way to raising the dead. Casting out demons. But you would think everybody would be like, wow, this is the greatest person ever. His own people end up killing him by nailing him on a cross. And we talked about this. Very important. Peter didn't put it in the text here. Luke didn't, who wrote the book of Acts. But what we know is the key to Jesus' death is not just that he died on a cross because tens of thousands of people died on crosses in the Roman Empire. It was the substitutionary aspect of Jesus' death and it was the sin-bearing aspect of Jesus' death that is the key. And then Peter says, he not only died, he's, t- he's preaching in this man's house, him and his household and his friends. And he's saying how they killed him on a cross, but God raised him up on the third day, just like he predicted. And he, God showed him to be alive. And I'm one of the people, me and other witnesses, we saw him, we even ate and drank with him. We know this to be the fact. And then over a 40-day period while Jesus was alive on earth after his resurrection, he tells his disciples, you go preach to people that I am the judge of all, the living and the dead. He is the great judge. He's been the one that you, you, all of you, you right there, everybody there, We're all going to stand before Jesus, and he's going to judge. Do you go to heaven or hell? The decision will be his. But we had this hint. Would you look with me now as we get to verse 43? This is where the culmination of last week's message. Look at verse 43. So Peter's preaching this message about Jesus, and then he says, In this Gentile's house, so we're going to read from here all the way to chapter 11, verse 18. Here we go. To him, Jesus, all the prophets bear witness. All, so here's Peter saying, hey, Cornelius, I know, you something, I know you know something about the Jewish prophets. All of them have been pointing to him. Every, all of their message all along has been pointing to this one, Jesus, that you've heard about in the land because you've been living in Israel as a Roman military man stationed in Israel. So now verse 43. 
To him all the prophets bear witness. Well, what do they say? That everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Let that sink in. Here's Peter's culmination. He thinks he's going to keep preaching more and more things. But he gets to this point. This man Jesus, Holy Spirit comes on him. He does all these miracles. But then they kill him. But God raises him from the dead. He shows himself alive. He's the judge of all people. All the Old Testament prophets were talking about him. And here's the message they give. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. As we pointed out last week, there was no altar call. There was no repeat after me prayer. He literally, this is the perfect congregation. This is the model congregation. This man and his household sitting there listening to Peter. They are tracking With every word that he's saying, they're so in tune. They're implementing what he's saying. They're heeding it as he's saying it. So much so that when he says, everybody, all the prophets, here's the message. Everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins. And about that time, Peter thinks he's going to keep preaching. No need to keep preaching because the Holy Spirit. That tells us they were so in tune with what he was saying. When he got to the point, everybody who believes in Jesus, they just did it. They did it on the inside and the Holy Spirit fell upon them. And this is where we stopped last week. Kind of had a lot in that. We got a lot in this one. And we stopped at verse 45. Peter had six Jewish men with him. He was smart enough and wise enough, and God prompted him, take these six Jews with you because they need to be witnesses. And the believers from among the circumcised, that's code for the Jews, who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Like, he's preaching, and they're probably like, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden, Gentiles now have the Holy Spirit. They didn't even have to get circumcised or baptized into Judaism. It just happened. Look what just happened. And you may be wondering, like, how do they know the Holy Spirit fell? Well, it's verse 46. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling the idea of exalting God. Then Peter declared, remember, he's no longer going to preach a salvation message. Why does he need to say, hey, you need to put your faith and trust in Christ? He knows they have done it. So now, in essence, having seen this and heard this, you got a picture. He turns to these six Jewish men and he asks, verse 47, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit? Just as we have. They need to get baptized. Does anybody have a problem? Any of you guys have a problem? They need to get baptized. Obviously, no one did. No one steps up and says, they need to get circumcised before they get... Anybody got a problem? We're going to baptize them. Verse 48. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus. Then they asked him to stay and remain for some days. Will you stay? Will you teach us? They got saved. They got baptized. He ends up spending some time there in this city called Caesarea. Now chapter 11. The fallout. Now the apostles, the other 11... And the brothers, meaning brothers and sisters, Christians, who were throughout Judea, southern Israel, heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. That had received the word of God. That's code for they heard the Gentiles. The Gentiles got saved. Wait, do you mean became Jew? No. I mean, here's the word that's coming back. They, as Gentiles, got saved. 
That's what we've heard. This gets all the way. He's spending some extra time in Caesarea. This word beats him back to Jerusalem so that in verse 2. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem. The circumcision party. The idea those are the circumcision. Some would say this is just all the Jews. Apparently what this means is a certain group. Real strict legalistic type Jews within all the believers. Watch it. Verse 2. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem. The circumcision party criticized him. Saying, hey, we need a meeting with you. And so they bring Peter in. And here's what they say. You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Translation. Why did you do that? Why did you? You know what we've heard? Word is that you went in the house of a Gentile and you've eaten with them. Why did you do this? A little side note. The Catholic Church would have us to believe that Peter was the first pope. Doesn't sound like he's the first pope. Because would you talk to the pope that way? Hey, you've got them. If he was, he'd say, you stand down. I'm Peter. I'm the Pope. I'm in charge of the church on earth. I'll do it. I don't have to answer you. That's not what he does. Watch what he does. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. Do, do, you, do, you, hit, do you feel their energy? Do you feel their emotion? Man, we've heard you've gone into Gentiles' house. You ate with them. What in the world? What in the world is going on, Peter? What's gotten into you? Guys, let me start at the beginning. Verse 5. So here's the part that's been repeated week after week in chapter 10. Peter says, I was in the city of Joppa praying. And in a trance, I saw a vision. Something like a great sheet descending. Being let down from heaven by its four corners. So you're picturing this large sheet, kind of like the old stork carrying a baby. That's much larger. I'm in the city of Joppa. I'm praying. I'm in a trance. I see a vision, something like a great sheet descending. It's being let down from heaven by its four corners. It came down to me. This thing was designed to come to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey. So these are not just animals. These are animals with claws and flesh-tearing teeth. All kinds, different kinds of animals. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. He's telling the story to these Jews. And they're like, and? And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. I got all these animals, all kinds. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord. For nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. I'm a good Jew. I don't eat anything except kosher food. Some of those animals are clearly unclean animals according to Leviticus chapter 11. I've never eaten anything like that. I'm not starting now. And I'm imagining Peter going, are y'all tracking with me here in, 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 in Jerusalem? And they're like, yeah. So I had this vision. I hear this voice. I say, by no means, Lord. And they're probably going, absolutely. That's what we, we would never do that. You did the right thing by saying no. He continues. But the voice answered a second time from heaven. What God has made clean, do not call common. And they're probably thinking, well, what does that mean? I hear this voice, rise, kill, and eat. I say, no, I'm not going to do it. I've never eaten anything unclean. Then this voice says, but what God has now made clean, I'm not to call common. What does that mean? Still not done. 
This happened three times. And then all was drawn up into heaven, again into heaven. Three times. Rise, Peter, kill, and eat. Three times. No, Lord, I'm not doing it. Three times. Hey, what I have now made clean, don't you keep calling it common or unclean. Well, that would imply something's changed. Still not done. Verse 11. And behold, Peter's telling the story. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were. Sent to me from Caesarea. I don't know anybody in Caesarea. These three men. They're coming down. They, they know the house I'm in. How does this happen? An angel had told them. And the Spirit, he's still not done. There's more. And the Spirit, the Spirit of God told me to go with them, making no distinction. Translation. Peter, the wall between you and them is going to be Gentiles. You make no distinction. You just move that wall down and you go with these men. And then Peter in verse 12 in the middle. Again, I'm picturing him doing his arms like this. Talking to these people who are questioning him and they're angry at him. These six brothers also accompanied me. And we entered the man's house. And right there, oh, so it's true. These six men were with me. Yes, we entered the man's house. And then he told us that he had seen the angel stand in his house and say. So we get in there. He starts telling us. He says, an angel came, stood in my house. He says, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who's called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. I go in his house. These guys can, you know, and they're going, that's what happened. He starts telling his side of the story, what God was doing on his end. Next thing you know, I know I'm supposed to preach. I start preaching about Jesus. Again, I'm reading between the lines. Look at verse 15. Here we go. And as I began to speak, it doesn't mean literally the moment. What he's saying is I'm barely getting into my message. Got a lot more to say. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So here's Peter's conclusion. If then God gave the same gift to them that he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was I that I could stand in God's way? Let me give you a quick tip. If you see a train coming down the track at full speed and it's got like 70 cars behind it and it's 50 yards away, do not get out in front of that. Stop. You are going to die. So Peter's like, God's doing all this. Do you seriously think I'm going to stand in front of God and say, God, that, you can't do this. Not my place. And in verse 18 is the conclusion. When they heard these things, they fell silent. There was quietness. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So let's go back where we left off last week, back in verses 46 to 48. And would you notice, number one, the immediate results of salvation. I'll go ahead and warn you, we're going to spend, this will be our longest point, the first point. There's a lot in these three verses. There's a lot there. What are the immediate results of salvation? Somebody gets saved. Last week we looked at what, like four things? Here's what happens. They get forgiveness of sins. They will not perish in hell. They get eternal life. They get what's called saved. Saved from the penalty of their sin. But we also, you say, hey, what, what are the immediate results of salvation? 
A person that gets saved receives the Holy Spirit. These people receive the Holy Spirit. In this house, Peter preaches everybody who will trust and put their faith in Jesus Christ, they get forgiveness of sins. All of a sudden, the Holy Spirit comes down on them in the moment, and then he manifests how. If you're taking notes this morning, I want you to write this down. It's important because we're going to talk about verse number 46. The miraculous gift of tongues was absolutely necessary in this event right here. You say, why? Because remember, as we've already seen in chapter 18, the church in Jerusalem is going to want to know, why do you think those Gentiles got saved? Because they have the Holy Spirit. Why do you think the Gentiles, what makes you think those Gentiles actually do have the Holy Spirit? Because we saw them speaking in tongues, and Peter's attitude is, I know what that looks like. I've been there. I saw, I've seen this before. So the idea is the Jerusalem church is going to demand evidence that they really did have the Holy Spirit, these Gentiles. And so now we can see why is the whole speaking in tongues thing so important and so necessary in this particular text. And so I'm going to take a few moments. I'm going to admit uh, we're, we're always going to go where the text goes. God, and I know we've got a, a, a very unique audience this morning. That is awesome. Here we go where the text goes. I'm not going to do a deep dive. If you want a deeper dive, then I would advise you to go back and find messages at the end or at the beginning of Acts chapter 2, probably the second message there, I think it was. So I would encourage you to go back and look at that. But I am going to touch on this, this whole speaking in tongues. What is it? So here's what I'm going to encourage you. I'm, I'm not being sarcastic and smart aleck this morning. I want to let the Bible formulate. Here's where I'm at. The longer I live, and I'm, I'm not... I'm not Y'all can come hand me somebody's book. I might read it. I'm probably not. I don't really have time to read them. I've been given them. I am literally, as the years go, I just want the Bible to formulate where I'm at. And I know, I know that right now in this room, there are many people, you have an opinion of what, what is speaking in tongues. I want us to see what the Bible says it is. Because there is an explanation in the Bible. So here it comes. If you want to write it down, and we're going to defend it in just a moment. Acts chapter number 2, verses 4 through 11, shows us that the gift of speaking in tongues is a person's ability to speak in human languages they've never learned before. That's a miraculous gift. You think about that. Think about the ramifications of that. To suddenly, instantly, you've never studied a language, to suddenly now you can speak that language. You're like, where in the world are you getting that idea? That's not... My idea of speaking in tongues, well, I'm going to ask you to, let's look at the Bible. Look at the Bible, what it has to say. Go back to chapter 2. So here we have the second instance. There's going to be a third one in chapter 19 of the book of Acts. By the way, remember, there are two key books in the, in the New Testament that talk about speaking in tongues. It's the book of Acts. There's three places. We're in the second one right now. And the other is 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 14 in particular. Chapter 12 and 14. What is it? Go back, if you would, Acts chapter 2. Let's find the first, because right here, right out of the gate, it's going to show us what it is. Look at Acts chapter 2, look at verse number 4. This is on the day of Pentecost. There's 120 people in an upper room, and watch what it says, verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Can I interject quickly? Acts chapter 10, verse number 47, does not say... Peter's preaching, and all of a sudden, they started speaking in an unknown tongue. doesn't say that. They began to speak in tongues, plural, a variety of tongues. And we know tongues are languages. It's not like 
Oh, all those people suddenly started speaking in an unknown tongue. No. Many of, however many are in, in Cornelius' family and friends, they start speaking in a variety. This is exactly. I am not, you study it out. Chapter 2, verse number 4. Holy Spirit falls. They begin speaking in tongues. What does that even mean? Look at verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. They're here. There's this big feast, right? It's Pentecost. It's, one of, it's the middle feast of the big three. And a lot of Jews have been moving to Jerusalem because they're anticipating the Messiah is supposed to come here according to the book of Daniel. Well, he had. There were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound... The multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Everybody catch that? Literally, here's what's happening. These 120 people get filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes down. The church is born. They start speaking in tongues. These people from all over the world, Jews that are spread out, are in Jerusalem for this feast. And it's like, she's, she's speaking my home, my home language. He's speaking mine. And they're just like, people are recognized that that's... How is that possible? Look, if you would, verse number 6. I'm sorry, verse 7. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not these all who speak Galileans? Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? There's not, I know the people from our group. We came together, and they're not. There's no way that person, there's no way she could know this, our language. There's no way he could know ours. Verse 8. And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? And there's a list. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. This was an amazing miracle. These people have never studied these languages and suddenly they're able to speak languages they've never learned before. Would you make your way back to chapter, chapter 10? I want to propose to you the following. Watch. There are two great time periods when missions and the gospel has gone around the world at an amazing rate. In the book of Acts, up and from A.D. 30 until A.D. 62 is one of those times. And then the late 1800s to the mid-1900s. 1800s into halfway through the, uh, the 20th century, about, not, about World War II at the end. I propose to you that one of the things I believe that helped spread the gospel so quickly was the freedom of movement because of the Roman Empire, their roads and the, and the waterways. Number two, there was this common Greek language, but also there was these people there who were able to go out and take the gospel, and they're able to speak to people, and it's like they have the gift of tongues, never learned, how, how are you speaking in our village? You have never, and God used that miracle to show that I ought to really listen to what these people are saying. So here's my, I'm, 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 when I said earlier, I'm being sincere. I'm not being smart, Alec, okay? Why is it that so many modern people, when they think of the gift of tongues being exercised, why is it that they think and they make an assumption that 1 Corinthians 14 or Acts chapter 10 or Acts chapter 19, it's almost like let's not even think about what's clear in chapter 2, they hear about tongues. Why is it that they make an immediate assumption, here it is, that tongues means to speak in a heavenly, unknown to anyone on earth language? It's, it's when you talk in a language, the language of heaven. 
The language of the Holy Spirit. The language of the angels. Where are you getting that from? What is the biblical evidence? Why do you just make this leap? What I propose to you instead of, instead of that is just to insert this. They're speaking in tongues. They're speaking in a language they've never studied. Watch. They may not know what they're saying, but it's a language they've never studied. Or they know what they're saying. Sometimes they need an interpreter. Sometimes they don't. Maybe they know. Wow. How is this happening? Or I don't know. So what I propose to you is an example of tongues. If it were to happen today, would be one of us suddenly being able to speak French, having never studied it. Or to speak Mandarin. Or to speak, is Anthony here today? Is Anthony in here? He's, okay. Or to suddenly be able to speak Lugandan. Why am I mentioning Lugandan? You want to take a wild guess who speaks Lugandan? Uganda. They speak English. There's one person in our church, to my knowledge, who knows how to speak Lugandan. If I were suddenly to start speaking in Lugandan and he were here, he's rusty, but he'd, he'd know, what, what in the world? Pastor Jeff's up there. He's talking. When did you learn? I'm like, never learned it. This is wild. This is crazy. Now, you may sit there and go, that's a bunch of nonsense. Anthony would know, think what you will. I know what's happening. That would be an example. So here's literally where I'm at. Anybody today who honestly believes, hey, I have the gift of tongues, you should seriously pray about being a missionary. Would God have you go be a pioneer missionary and use that gift and just be able to go in because a lot of the missionaries were sending, bless their hearts, they're having to spend three and four years learning a language. It'd sure be a great gift to just go in and bypass that and just start, and wow, what effect that would have on those people. So I'm almost done with this part. Here's my challenge to you, all of you. Wherever you're at, when you read what the Bible has to say about the gift of tongues, I'm going to invite you, insert this interpretation. They're speaking in a language they've never learned. Just insert that interpretation. To my knowledge, there's only one spot that that would not fit. It's 1 Corinthians 13, verse number 1, where Paul says, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I do not have love, I'm nothing but a noisy gong and a loud clanging cymbal. But watch what happens. Paul, and he's being hypothetical. What he's saying is, if I could speak literally every human language. Do you know how many there are? Hundreds and hundreds. There are thousands of languages and dialects on the planet. Paul say, if I could speak them all and the language. Of, and, and for some reason, here's what modern people do. They totally bypass that. And they go, yep, it's, it's this. And they'll go to 1 Corinthians 14. And they'll say, people who are praying in an unknown tongue. Just insert right there. They're praying in a language they've never learned. And maybe, literally, they don't know what they're saying, but it's an actual human language. Why do we just automatically feel like we can make this leap? So here's my last thing, and you're going to think I'm being sarcastic and smarty here, right? I'm not. I literally am challenging you. Here's my challenge. Do the supposed tongues that you and I have heard in our day, I don't know your experience, I know some of mine, do those supposed expressions of the gift of tongues sound like an actual language? Do those sound like an actual language? Hang with me. I'm going to go back and I'm going to read my first little paragraph that I have on my notes. To get my point, you're going to have to pretend. Would you pretend 
you don't know English. Pretend you do not know English. you got to pretend. So you're not even listening for the content because you've already heard it a while ago. I want you to listen to the sounds of the English language. Just hear the variety and the style. If you did not know English but you heard this, I get up and I'm Roman numeral point one. You don't know English. You're just listening. Immediate results of salvation. Acts chapter 10, verses 46 to 48. The miraculous gift of tongues was absolutely necessary in this event because the church at Jerusalem would demand evidence that Gentiles had the Spirit. How do we know they have the Spirit is what they would ask. If you've never heard English, you would say, I don't know what all that noise is, but clearly he's speaking something. That's some language. He's here, there, all these... You say, what is your point you're making up there looking like an idiot? Here's my point. Would the language of heaven and the language of the angels and the language of the Holy Spirit sound technically less full and less impressive than English? Would it sound less impressive and less full than English? I dare say if it's the language of heaven, it's probably more impressive than English. What I've heard in my life, it doesn't sound anything like a real language. Well, then what is it? I ain't telling you the answer to that. You've got to figure that out for yourself. I'm telling you what it, what it would really be to speak in actual known human languages. Maybe they know what it is. Maybe they don't, but never had to learn it. Back to Acts 10. So this is an amazing miracle. These people are doing something, and Peter knows what it is. Here we go. So what does Peter do? He turns, verse 47. Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? What has he just done? So there's several things in today's message, and I'm, y'all gonna have to, you're going to have to really pray, right? Because we're going to unhook from something, and then we're going to kind of go a whole different direction. And this passage just kind of has us moving a lot. And I'm just praying these little mini sermons connect as the Lord will work them into your heart. So pray that the Lord would do that. He's preaching. Holy Spirit falls. He recognizes what it is. He knows that they're full of the Holy Spirit. What has he just done? Would you write this down in your notes? Peter, in verse number 47, clearly makes the presence of the Holy Spirit in a person's life, a in their life, in them, the presence of the Holy Spirit becomes the clear proof of salvation. So Peter's preaching. Here's how you would get saved. All of a sudden, they're full of the Holy Spirit. He stops preaching about salvation. He knows they're saved because they have the Holy Spirit. He knows it. And then he starts pivoting and starts saying they need to get baptized. They're already saved. How do you know they're saved? Because they have the evidence of the Holy Spirit in their life. Now that's an important note. The presence of the Holy Spirit in a person is the proof. You say, no, the proof is is if I tell you I'm a Christian, then that's all you need to know. No. Can we all agree there's a lot of people in Anderson, South Carolina, who say they're saved, and they're really not. Can we agree on that? I'm going to let you all in on a little secret. I, I'm, I don't have anybody in mind. I promise I have no one in mind, but I'll guarantee you the following. There are multiple people in this room right now who 
think, who think they're saved and would say they're saved, but they're really not. And here's the reason. They have no evidence of the Holy Spirit in their life. There's no evidence of the Holy Spirit. So what I'm going to ask you, literally every, every one of you, everyone, whether you, whether you don't know me or you kind of know me or you barely know me or you know me extremely well, I'm asking everybody in here and everybody watching online right now, I'm asking you this, what is the evidence? Because the Holy Spirit, proof of Him being in your life, that's how you know you really are saved. Not just saying you're saved. How do you really know you're saved? If I were to ask you, what is the evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life, what would you say? Start thinking. How do I know? Oh, I have the Holy Spirit, Pastor Jeff. How do you know? Well, because what's your answer? About three months ago, we started giving some some evidences. So I'm going to ask you to do this. Would you just right now test yourself by the following? Can I call them universal proofs and evidences of the Holy Spirit? I'm just going to get them. They're not on handout. Just listen. Put yourself to the test. People who have the Holy Spirit, true believers, one of the things he does for us is he gives us assurance of salvation. Am I saying that a Christian would never have a concern about their salvation. Hey, I got saved at age 9, and I kind of had a few times where I doubted that between age 9 and 12. Listen to me. But if I were to ask you, hey, are you a Christian? Are you saved? And this is your answer. Are you going to heaven? Boy, I hope so. I'm not real sure. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to heaven or hell. I hope I'm going to heaven. If that's you, then you're going to hell. Because the Holy Spirit gives believers assurance. Here's another one, a second one, test yourself. The Holy Spirit, according to 1 Corinthians, helps believers understand the Bible. Doesn't mean we're scholars, doesn't mean there's not some hard part, doesn't mean we get it all. But here's the thing, if you're here this morning, you're like, man, I got to hear teaching and preaching every week and I don't get a thing out of it. I, nothing about it makes any sense. It's because you don't have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit helps believers make sense of the Bible. Again, not perfectly and you're going to grow in that ability. Third one, the Holy Spirit gives believers spiritual strength. Strength what? To endure more than they would do by themselves. Spiritual strength to overcome sin. Here's a fourth one. We have what in Galatians is called spiritual fruit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, meekness, faithfulness, faithfulness, temperance. Again, not perfect. Up and down and highs and lows. But the Holy Spirit in you is producing these things. Here's another one. Number five. Can you look and say that, wow, through the years, God is guiding my life. The Holy Spirit guides our life. Here's a sixth one. The Holy Spirit gives true believers spiritual gifts, and he helps you to employ and use your spiritual gift. When you are full of the Holy Ghost, all of a sudden you find yourself helping the body of Christ by doing whatever it is he's gifted you to do, and he's the power behind it. Here's a seventh one. Conviction of daily sin. Listen, if you can sin and you know what you're doing is sinful, and it doesn't bother you. Or your only concern is, I hope I don't get caught by mankind. And there's no like tension and reverential fear of God in that. Like, If you don't have conviction of your daily sins, it's because you don't have the Holy Spirit. If you have no love for God, here's an eighth one, I'll stop here. If you're like, I don't love God and I don't love Christians, but I sure hope I'm going to heaven. You are not going to heaven because the Holy Spirit, according to Romans 5.5, 5, has been poured in our heart and he produces love. You say, well, I don't always love Christians like I should. Yeah, well, me neither. I'm not talking about that. Do you love God and do you love Christians? Does your life show that you love Christians? 
You're like, well, sometimes they get on my nerves. Hey, join the club. I know, I understand. But we love them because the Holy Spirit's been poured. Would you write this thought down? I just gave you eight universal proofs that the Holy Spirit's in a person's life. Speaking in tongues is not a universal proof of having the Holy Spirit. Speaking in tongues is not a universal evidence and proof. It's certainly an evidence on this day, in this text that we're reading in Acts 10. Speaking in tongues is not a universal one at all. You say, all believers should, and by the way, y'all understand there are some people in our county who think if you really are saved, all saved people should be able to speak in tongues. Look at the screen, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Look at the screen. Here's Paul in the Bible asked some questions. You have to read the whole context. Watch. Are all apostles, I'm going to have y'all help me here. Are all Christians apostles like Peter, James, and John? Nope. Are all Christians prophets? Nope. All Christians don't have the gift of prophecy. Are all teachers? Do all Christians have the gift of teaching? No. Do all work miracles? Do all possess the gifts of healing? No. Do all speak with tongues? No. Tongues are not a universal gift. That's automatically mean. Everybody who has the Holy Spirit should... Nope, it's not a universal sign that you have the Holy Spirit. It's a sign that some have the Spirit. All right, look at one last thing. Here's verse 47, 48. We're back in chapter 10. Can anyone withhold water for them to be baptized? In verse 48, and he commanded them to be baptized. I want to give you four things that this teaches us about baptism. We're having baptism on December 25, or December 10th. We want to do it on Monday, on Christmas Day. We're not doing it today. We plan on doing it Sunday the 10th. And there's some in the room. You need to listen. There are four truths that are pointed out in verses 47 and 48. And I'm going to go ahead and kind of tell you, the first one and the fourth one are the most important. So let's hit them. Number one. The fact that these people have the Holy Spirit before they get baptized. Everybody with that? In verse 44, they get the Holy Spirit. The fact that they have the Holy Spirit in verse 44 and they don't get baptized in verse number 48, that baptism follows their receiving of the Holy Spirit. What does that tell us? That proves that water baptism is not essential to salvation. Are you saying baptism is not important? I am not. I am saying baptism is very important, as you'll see in a moment. What I'm saying is it's not essential to being saved because the people already have the Holy Spirit. And that's the sign that you're saved. They have the Holy Spirit before they got baptized in water. So clearly, water baptism is not essential to actually getting saved in the first place. Let me give you another hint. Peter commanded that they be baptized. What does that tell you? Peter did not do the baptizing. Y'all help me out. There are two other very prominent people in the New Testament who did not baptize the converts of Jesus. Peter is... He commanded them to be baptized. He doesn't do it. Who do you think one of the other two people are? Paul and, I heard the other one, Jesus. The, book, the gospel of John goes out of its way to say that when people are being baptized, Jesus' disciples were doing the baptizing, but not Jesus himself. Paul writes to the Corinthians and says, I thank God that I did not baptize all of you. I did baptize and he names just a few. But by and large, Paul's like, I'm not in the baptizing ministry. Other people do that. Peter's like, y'all need to get them baptized. If water baptism was essential for eternal life, don't you think Jesus and Paul and Peter would say, hey, get out of the way. I need to do this. I want to make sure it's done right because we're getting ready to wash their sins away. 
And yet they let other people do it. Does that make sense? Like be honest with yourself. Does what I've just pointed out, does that make sense? If that doesn't, meet me after. Like I'm not being, I'm not being mean. I'm just like, does that make sense? Like honestly? Because if you're thinking, that does make sense. They have the Holy Spirit there. Then they later get baptized. Obviously, they're saved before they got they're saved before they got baptized. If that makes sense to you, then I'm going to ask you a favor. When we ask you about when you got saved, don't start telling us about when you got baptized and where and who did it. That's not what we're asking. Does that make sense? Can we agree on that? Number two. There's no indication that those who did the baptizing had to be ordained ministers. Peter commands them to be baptized. And out came all the ordained preachers. Here we come. We're going to do that. Nothing in the text says you have to be an ordained minister to baptize people. It's just fellow believers. Third thing we notice. Number three. There's no time delay. Let's see how holy these Gentiles live and then we'll baptize. Nope, there's no time delay to see how holy they're going to live. They just baptize them. In the, in the moment, in the day. Again, no waiting period, no time delay. Now, a while ago I told you the first one and the fourth one are the most important ones. Here's the fourth one. Verse number 48, he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. No one resisted baptism. No one resisted baptism. You say, wonder why that is. You mark it down, and we could back this up in other passages of Scripture. Here it comes. Those who are truly saved and have truly put their faith and trust in Christ will profess Him publicly. They will profess Him. Jesus says, if you're ashamed of me on earth, I'll be ashamed of you in heaven. Implication. My people are not ashamed of me. They are willing to go and be public in their declaration of salvation by getting baptized. So last week I'm up here preaching how somebody can sit there and literally listen to verse number 43. They could put their faith in Christ literally in the moment and we would never know. We would never know because we don't have that immediate Holy Spirit falls down the gift of tongues like that. We don't have that. You don't have it about me. I don't have it about you. But it's very possible to sit there and have this private moment with Christ and then hear that we're having a baptism on December 10 and you're just kind of like me in Bible college. You know what I did in Bible college? Bible college, year number one, they had, hey, all you preacher boys sign up. On Friday nights, we're going to take turns. You get to do little 10-minute sermons in class. And a lot of those boys, boy, they couldn't wait to sign up. I never signed up. You say, why not? Because I had a massive inferiority complex. I know they're all better than me. I hear them. I see them. They're, I'm not doing I got out of it. Never had to do it. Dr. Waters never said, hey, Bartlett, have, I noticed you have. I got out of fourth year. All the seniors are supposed to preach at chapel. All the guys preach at chapel. I got out of it sheepishly. I never signed up, and they never made me do it. But we're talking about baptism. This is a command from Christ. His people obey this command. There's no command in the Bible that to be in Bible college, you've got to preach first and fourth year. So I got out of that. If you're a believer and you've never been baptized and gone public, you come to us. You don't wait us to come, hey, didn't something, blah, blah, blah. You let us know, and you put your name in that box, and we'll get you contacted. Number two this morning, very short point, number three, and verses one through three of chapter 11. Here we go. Peter is called to give an account. Peter's called to give an account. 
So word among the church beats him back to Jerusalem. Word is that Gentiles have gotten saved. Would you look at verse 2 of chapter 11? Here we go. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with him. This is a very short point. Get your pens ready. Who are these of the circumcision? I'm going to propose to you that they're not the apostles, and they're not all the brothers and sisters in Christ in verse number 1. It's this, however large, this other smaller party. They were very legalistic. They were very extremely, we could say extremely zealous for the law. And notice what their problem is with Peter. Their problem is not so much that he preached the gospel to Gentiles and they got saved. It's that he ate with Gentiles, uncircumcised Gentiles. Why does that bother them so much? Because the implication when you eat with somebody, it like gives the signal that you accept them. That you are fellowshipping with them. And so here are these extremely zealous for the Old Testament law. Christians, I believe they're Christians. They got a real problem. Peter, what in the world? You need to give an account. We've heard that you've gone in to their house and even eating with them. Does that mean you're accepting them? You're fellowshipping with Gentiles? Don't you know that they need to get circumcised? Like the law tells us that they need to be done in the Old Testament? Do they know how to get circumcised? We Jews have to. They think they're going to heaven just the same as us? And they're really bringing Peter to task. Just before we hit the third point, let me mention this. That whole, when they heard that the Gentiles had received the word, guys, listen. I don't have the ability to get across how much of a shock to the system this was. You know why we don't feel it like they did? Because it's been 2,000 years and that's what we're used to. And we have the books of Romans and Galatians and Ephesians. This is what we've known. To them, they didn't have Romans, Galatians, and Ephesians. This was just happening. Like, what in the world? Gentiles, can that even happen? Peter, you need to explain yourself, which takes us to number three. Peter defends his Gentile ministry in verses 4 through 17. Peter defends his Gentile ministry. So I'm going to make a couple of points out of verse 4. I'm not going to tear apart all the retelling of the story in verses 5 through 15 in particular. I'm not going to, you need to hear the previous weeks. But would you look at verse number 4? After just being challenged, no doubt emotionally, Peter began and explained it to them in order. Watch what, would you look at the screen? Years later, can we have the next, look at that verse. Who wrote that? You see the passage on the screen? Who wrote that? Peter, same guy. Look what he writes. I know we're jumping in the middle of a verse because it starts with a lowercase b. Look what it says. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Peter is literally in this moment in chapter 10 living up to what he's later going to write. Hey, when somebody challenges you why you do what you do. Hey, everybody watch. I want to encourage you. Be ready to give a defense and a Bible reason why you do what you do. Can you do that? Four weeks ago, I was standing right back there and somebody asked me something. Hey, how come you here? I've noticed you don't do such and such. And I said, I want you to read to the end of chapter 10. It just so happened that the answer came from the chapter we're in. I said, would you come back? Would you look ahead and you'll see why we don't have to do this thing that, that I was being asked about? I gave a Bible reason. Can you give a Bible reason for why you do the things you do? If in your Christian life you're like, I don't do that. Why? If you're like, 
Christians ought to do that. Why? What's your Bible reason? I want to say it even stronger. When you, I'm talking to you, when you take a firm theological stance, be sure that you're grounded on the Bible. Could we agree on this? Could we agree on this? The more fervent your stance is, the more clear and the more numerous should be your proofs in the Scripture. Could we agree on that? Does that make sense? The more fervent you are about that's what Christians do and don't do and that's what churches should do, the more fervent you are, then the more clear your passages of Scripture and the greater number of Scriptures you should have to defend your point. You say, you, believe, you people down there believe Jesus is God. Yep, we're fervent on that. Got lots of Scriptures and they're really clear. You down there at Grace, if you think you get saved not by working your way to heaven, that like God in His grace just gives it to you as long as you'll believe Jesus. Yep, got a lot of Scripture, and they're really clear, and we get fervent about that. Have you ever met a modern Christian, and they're fervent about this little man-made rule and that little man-made rule, and when you go to church, you've got to wear this, and you can't wear that? Have you ever heard that stuff? Have you ever heard somebody get real fiery? you got to use songbooks. You can't use screens. Men ought to wear suits and ties and women ought to wear dresses and they get real. And you can, you can have that instrument but not those. And you got to use that translation of the Bible. And they get real fervent. And all, I'm, all I want to say is, hopefully patiently, could you just show me any of that? The Bible does talk about modesty. But you've just applied some American, southern 2023 rules. Why can't we use that instrument? Why is that instrument sinful? Where is that? Have you read Psalm 150? Now, this next thought, I'm throwing it in. I'll do it quickly. Peter's called to account. What does he do? What's his answer? Do you see it? This happened, and this happened, and this happened. I'm getting technical here. I know I'm. I'm this is one of those we're kind of moving on to the next thought. Next challenge. When you're called to defend your stance, theological, why you do and don't do things. Unlike the apostles, our experiences are not authoritative enough to offset or to amend clear Bible truths. Would you write that down? Our experiences, I don't believe that guy, what he said about tongues, that's a bunch of nonsense. I know what tongues, tongues is this, that, and the other. What are you basing that on? Because I went and saw something one time. What do you do with Acts chapter 2 is my question. What do you do with that? Do you make it the simple little exception, put it over in the corner, and does your experience outrank what the Bible says? You say, well, Peter's using experiences. Would you look again? I, we don't have time to turn. Would you just look at, at the screen? Look at the verses up here. John, I, I read this just last week in my private devotions. So it kind of like, hey, Lord, look, that fits. That's happened sometimes. Would you look at that? This is just hours before, this is just moments before Jesus is going into the Garden of Gethsemane. He will die on the cross the next day. Look what he writes. He's talking to his disciples, minus Judas. He's talking to the 11. He says, hey, guys, look, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak of his, on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. Look back at verse number 12. I still have many things to say to you. Jesus is saying, I've got a lot I still need to teach you. But you cannot bear them now. 
Do you understand what's happening? When the Holy Spirit comes, what, what Jesus is saying is, there's things, if I tried to tell you boys these things right now, you, if I tried to tell you about Gentiles in the church, you would not get it. You're not ready for it. If I were to try to tell you what my death on the cross theologically means and all the implications, you don't get it because you don't even want to believe that I'm going to die on the cross. You keep just putting it away. I say it clearly. You just keep shoving it aside. You're not ready for it now. But when the Holy Spirit comes, you're going to write these things called epistles. And in there, he's going to give you truth. And now we know from Acts chapter 10, one of the ways that the Holy Spirit taught the apostles through experience of vision. But even Peter's vision on the rooftop was not apart totally from Scripture. It was in agreement with Mark chapter 7. It was in agreement with really the message of the Old Testament that Gentiles all along were going to be brought in. Does that make sense? I've got to move on. Does that make sense? We don't just get to say, hey, I don't care what the Bible says. I know what happened to me, and it's the opposite. God told me that I'm supposed to do such and such, but it's the opposite of what the Bible says. You do not need to trust your experience if it contradicts the Bible. One more thought from verse 4, and this is for me. This is some preaching to me here, and maybe a few others. Look at verse 4. You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them, but Peter began and explained it to them in order. I'm, I'm sensing a different energy. They're like, can't wait. They've got their, man, they've got their arrows ready. They launch them. You've got explaining to do. And all of a sudden, Peter's just like, okay, I have some answers. What, what is he displaying? What character quality is Peter displaying? He's showing great patience and meekness. Would you write this thought down? Here's the idea. Here's Peter. Can I, I'm reading between the lines. Hey, fellas. I get it. Y'all are really mad at me. <laughs> I don't blame you. I don't blame you. I've been where you're at. Me a month ago would be really ticked with me right now. Because me a month ago wouldn't have all the facts. No offense, but you don't have all the facts. Can I just share with you the story? Let me go back to the beginning and can just patiently write this down. John R.W. Stott writes, quote, It took four successive hammer blows of divine revelation before his, before Peter's racial and religious prejudice was overcome. So he's real patient with these guys because he knows it's just by God's grace that he's at a different place theologically than he was before. You say, what are these four successive hammer blows of divine revelation? It was this vision on the rooftop about these animals. Number two, the Holy Spirit tells him to get up and go with Gentiles to their house. Number three, he gets there and Cornelius has his own vision. And that's another evidence to put on the fire. Number four, the Holy Spirit fell on them and he knows exactly what is happening. It's like, Stott's like, Peter's being patient because he knows what it took to get him where he's at. You say, well, how does that have to do? Why are you preaching at yourself? Sometimes I catch myself every now and then refuting someone's theology. And I get a little too worked up because I'm, I'm frustrated, I'm irritated that they don't see what I see. But I used to believe the same thing they did. I used to look at people with rules. Where's his tie? Where's her dress? You say, you, oh, I did that. You say, why'd you do that? Because I was trained. That's what they learned us. You're using a new King James? You're a heretic. Where's that? Well, it's not in here. We were taught. And I was a good soldier. 
one now. My largest paper I wrote in college, you know what it had to do with? The supremacy of the human will. How much our human will and how great it is in being saved. Well, today I can tell you, if you're going to be saved, you, must, you have to put your faith and trust in Christ. Now, me today knows that never happens unless God gives you the faith to believe. You're like, where do you get that from? Oh, right here, verse 18. I don't have to go real far. And I get sometimes real irritated with these people who are like, free will, free will. And I'm like, sovereignty, sovereignty. I got Bible, but it's like, Jeff, calm down, buddy. You read the Bible for years without seeing it, dummy. Give him a chance. Be patient. Peter's patient. Look at verse number five. He began, I was in the city of Joppa and I was praying. Would you write this thought? So verses five to 15 is like, wow. Just all this repetition. William Barclay points out that a scroll at this time, a scroll, they, they, would, they would not have had a Bible like this. It would have been a scroll. You know how long a, a large scroll would have been? 35 feet. You know how long a, a, the book of Acts would take? 35 feet. Barclay asks a great question. If every line is so precious, why does Luke, our author, keep repeating this? He repeats Saul of Tarsus' salvation three times. He keeps repeating this. Would you write it down? God uses repetition for clarification and for emphasis of how important something is. God uses repetition. He's showing us three times on the roof. Three times. Hey, rise, kill, and eat. Not so, Lord. Hey, don't you call unclean what God has now made clean. Why three times? Maybe I misheard it. The first, nope, didn't mishear it. He made it real clear. I was hearing the right thing. It wasn't what I was wanting to hear, but it was the right thing. And it must be really important for God to keep hammering. Man, this, this Gentile's getting saved here is a big deal. Yeah, it's a big deal. It's our birthday. That's what we're reading and studying the last month. So here's what I don't have time. If I had time, if I were to go back and revisit verses 5 through 15, here's what I would emphasize. Peter placed great importance on the priority of prayer. Number two, these are the big things that we hit. By no means, Lord, those don't go together. Nobody gets to say, no, Lord. I read my Bible and God says, I'm a believer. I've never got baptized. I'm a real believer. I'm supposed to get baptized. I say, no, Lord. No, those two things don't go together. Number three, God really has abolished the Old Testament dietary laws. Praise the Lord. Number four, God sovereignly controls all the details of providence. All the little, right then, there's these three men, right at perfect timing. God is in control of all the details. You ought to look for it, and you ought to appreciate it. And thank God, trust it. Trust it. You're like, I don't like how it's going right now. I have some stuff for me, too. I don't like how it's going. God's in control of all the details. He's the God of providence. I like the God of miracles. That is awesome. The God of providence, this is much more awesome. Another one. Peter hears brand new truth. He puts it into his life immediately. And, of course, the big thing is Gentiles are brought into salvation. Quickly, would you look at verse 14? We're going to go much faster. Here we go. Because this is new. You say, why are you pointing out 14? Because this is new. It's a new little piece of information. I touched on it the very first week we started, but now I'm coming back. Watch. 
send to Joppa. So they go into Cornelius' house. He starts telling about the vision. And the angel told him, send to Joppa, bring Simon who's called Peter. Why? He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. Hey, we haven't talk, touched on that yet. They're, I'm going to be fast. Watch. The answer to your prayer, Cornelius, good news. Your prayers are coming before God. Here's the answer. Send for Peter. He's going to preach a message. And you and all your household are going to get saved. Y'all know what that means? That means Cornelius had a promise from God's angel that everybody he gets there that day is going to get saved. That's a big deal. Now I know why his house is so full in chapter 10, verse 27. He knows if I get them in there, they're going to, and that's what happened. He probably went down to Publix and said, I want all the tenderloins and all the ribeyes. You at my house. Why? I ain't getting a lot of time. I'm doing steaks. Okay, I'll be there. Whatever it takes. Here's the point. When God gives us a promise, we need to act on it. Tap into it. Believe it. This guy, his house is packed out. Why? Because I know they get saved. And they did. And then verse 15, 16. I just start my message and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit falls on them. Look at verse 15. It is so key. There's a phrase. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as. Watch what he doesn't say. This is important, ladies and gentlemen. Peter doesn't. Hey, hey. Jewish Christians, I know you're mad at me. Listen. Guys, am I telling the truth? Six men, yep. We go in. He tells us about his vision. I start preaching. I just get into the message. I get to the part about believing in Jesus. Holy Spirit falls on them just like, watch, just like he always does. That's not what he said. He doesn't say, listen, I'm preaching. The Holy Spirit falls on them just like he always does. That's not what he says. Look at verse 15. Verse 15 says, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. Would you write that down? Interestingly, interestingly, Peter does not say that the Holy Spirit fell just like he always does. He compares it to Pentecost. I know this is getting late and this is so tedious and technical, some will miss it. But some will get what I'm about to read. Warren Wiersbe is all over it. Because now we're tying back to the tongues thing just for a moment. Wiersbe writes, quote, It is interesting that Peter had to go all the way back to Pentecost to find an example of what happened in the home of Cornelius. This suggests that a dramatic baptism of the Spirit accompanied by speaking in tongues was not an everyday occurrence in the early church. I think some people, this is important, some people think, all the time, everybody that got saved started breaking out speaking in tongues. No, that is not true, or Peter would not have seen this as something special and unusual. What he's saying is, I know what this looks like. I'm preaching, Holy Spirit falls, they start speaking in tongues. I was there in chapter 2. It's the same thing. This is unique and special. God's sectioning this off as something great. He's accentuating this. So I'm almost done. This last point is very brief. Look at verse 17, though, just before that. Look at verse 17. So here's Peter's conclusion. If then God gave them the same gift as he's given to us when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Can I paraphrase that? Here's my paraphrase. So fellas, Peter before the Jews, I know you're really angry. I get it. 
I've been where you are. Did you hear what I said? I was in a right relationship with God when this happened. I was praying. Hey, I ain't bragging. Do you know that I just raised a woman back to life from the dead? She died in the time it sent to get me 11 miles away and back. God used me. I was in a right relationship with God. I'm on this roof. I'm praying. I know you're mad at me. I know you disbelieve. Number two, I didn't ask for this. I'm on the roof. This thing came to me. Number three, I rejected it. I didn't want it. I rejected it three times. But when God just kept hitting me over and over with a strong revelation, strong revelation, pow, 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 eventually, you know my conclusion? God's in charge, and I'm not, and I'm not about to say, hey, wait, God, you, you can't do that. What just happened here, the Holy Spirit? God, you, you can't do that. You've made a mistake. I'm not doing that. You guys can kick me out all you want, but I will be with Christ, and you will not be with Christ. Ouch. These six men, they cannot attest to my vision on the rooftop. They cannot attest to the Holy Spirit telling me what happened. But they can attest to Cornelius's vision. And they can attest to the Holy Spirit falling. So we got seven witnesses of what happened. You kicking me out? Or are you getting on board with what God's doing? Number four. The acceptance of the truth. They're really ticked off in verse 2 and 3. But verse number 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Have you ever done this? Now, y'all are so much better than me. You're so much better than me, so probably you haven't. But a few of you have done this. You ever done this? Have you ever built up something in your mind? You have really built that thing up. And then later on you find out that the whole foundation for what you've worked up is built on lies that like she said that and he said that and he did that and they wrote that and they sent that text and it's like I, I promise I didn't yes you did so and told, told me could you hold on a second what was that date here's the text I sent yeah well still well still what have you ever got so worked up and so much emotion that even when your whole basis has just been shot and you have no reason to be angry, you still struggle to not be angry? you ever been there? It's tough. In, Acts, in Romans chapter 12, Paul says, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Give these people credit, man. They were worked up, but when they heard everything, oh, okay. I guess God's granted, granted repentance to the Gentiles, Lynn. Good answer. We need to be that way with each other. So now we've finished Cornelius. What's the takeaway? The obvious takeaway is that God has brought Gentiles into the church as long as we believe to Christ. That's the top thing. But here's our lesson. Again, I'm going back to John R.W. Stott. Would you write this last note? He writes, the fundamental emphasis of, of the Cornelius story is that since God does not make distinctions in his new society, we must not make them either. God does not make distinctions in his new society. We must not make distinctions. Does that make sense? 
Native Jews, Hellenistic Jews. Native Jews, no, it's not here. It's here. Jews, Samaritans, no, it's just one. Jews and Samaritans, Gentiles, wait, okay, saved but barely. No, we're one. We're one. This is the message. Now, watch what Stott writes. That's the last on your handout, but watch. Everybody listen, almost done. The fundamental emphasis of the Cornelius story is that since God does not make distinctions in his new society, we must not make them either. Yet, the same ugly sin of discrimination has kept reappearing in the church in the form of racism, nationalism, sexism. Still exists. Why? Why? We still to this day have some people think it's not Jew-Gentile, it's white Christians are better than black Christians. That's out of the pits of hell. Check your heart. Do you ever come to our faith family and you see somebody that just doesn't dress as nice as you? They don't have, they don't have the wealth that you have. Do you in your mind look down on them? Knock it off. There are no distinctions. Do you kind of know, hey, I'm a little smarter than them. I'm smarter and they're down there and I'm up here. Or men. Men. Church is about the men. You got the little women. Wrong. Ladies, check your heart. I don't like men. I've been mistreated by my dad or brother or an uncle, and so I hate all men. Well, you got to get over that. In the church, we're all equal. There are no distinctions. The last line of our text this morning says, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted. He didn't say, Then to the Gentiles God has granted Life, eternal life. It's like God even gave them the repentance to have eternal life. He had to give both. The whole thing, the whole message, everything about becoming a Christian and being saved. It's about God's grace from the start to the finish. It's by God's grace that he accepts faith. Father, how are we going to save them? Uh, Let's make them believe. Don't they have to like be perfect and the the top 10% that live the holiest life? Nope. We're going to make them believe. That's grace. But they'll never believe. Their hearts are so darkened. We're going to give them the faith to believe. It's him the whole way through. Nowhere in this is there any any reason for us to be proud. There's never. Look at my skin color. Look how smart I am. Look at what I look like. Here's how much money I have. Here's what I inherited. Wrong answer. It's only by his grace that any of us make it. It's all about grace. Would you stand? Let's stand this morning. We'll be dismissed. Father, I pray that you would go with us today. We thank you for what we've learned in these weeks. Great lessons. Lord, I pray that you would really drive them home. In the coming days, may we have no distinctions in our faith family. May we love each other. May we not feel better than lost people. May we love them and reach out to them and pray for them and tell them about the gospel. Lord, I pray that we would be very quick to forgive each other. We're going to rub each other wrong sometimes. And I pray that we would be ready to give a reason why we do what we do. And that, Lord, we'd be willing to listen and actually hear why people are doing what they do. And then, Lord, let us be like iron sharpening iron and help each other when what we've based our beliefs and our emotions on are not factual things that we're willing to change and move toward each other as we move toward you ultimately. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great week.